The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Just from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Mm. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Melanie. I love this psalm. It's at the heart of what I really want to convey this morning as we unpack it is, is really a simple statement on its surface, and yet it's something that I think our hearts just ache for, uh, and that is this, that the Lord <laughs> loves you. The Lord loves you and he wants to give you rest for your soul. The Lord loves you and he wants to give you rest for your soul. I miss baseball. I love baseball. Baseball is poetry. It's not only poetry, it's history. It's it's a game where you can compare somebody who played in the 1930s with somebody who played in, in, the, in the last 10 years, and you can compare them uh, accurately, because it's also a game of numbers, and accounting, and math, and statistics. And I, I love it. I, I went to seminary, my wife and I moved to seminary uh, back in 1997, and that was the year that the St. Louis Cardinals signed a hitter named Mark McGuire. And if you remember the Mark McGuire Sammy Sosa home run race, you can set steroids aside for a second <laughs> and just know this whatever you say about the steroid era of baseball, that home run race in what would have been, I guess, 1998, was electrifying. And I was in Bush Stadium for probably 15 of McGuire's home runs that year. I saw them in person. And they played the Cubs all the time, and so I saw probably eight or nine of Sammy Sosa's home runs. And that was a lot of my introduction to baseball because I didn't really grow up with it. So we moved to St. Louis, which is one of the great, greatest baseball cities in the country, uh, whose roots go deep with the game, and I'm watching this history unfold. And it wasn't just the home run race, but it's the game. It's, it's, it's walking into Bush Stadium. This was the second iteration of Bush Stadium, which was kind of like an ashtray. It was this round building, and, and you would go into it. And, and I remember the experience of walking in and going down the corridor when you're, when you're headed toward your seats and entering, and there just being this unfolding sea of green and the red stadium seats and everybody in there and the smell of, this, of, of, the smell of baseball. It has a smell. 
It's a combination of, of beer and peanuts and popcorn and grass and leather and, and humans. And, and, it, and it was just, it was an amazing experience to, to do that. And I just think about it all the time, how there was just something where the world kind of just went right when I stepped into the stadium and saw the field in front of me as the players were going through their pregame rituals. It's this game that I, it's so fascinating to me because it's a game where if you give yourself to it, it will reward you over time. It will reward you. It unfolds. It has a complexity of layers. It's a game of nuance, number, history, heartache, exhilaration. It's a game of waiting. It's, it's a lot like life. That's one of the reasons I love baseball so much is that it mimics life. For example, you cannot single-handedly win a game of baseball, but you can single-handedly lose a game of baseball, right? You can't do everything all the time to make your team win, but you can drop the routine fly ball and allow the winning run to score at the end of the game, and then that's just on you, right? <laughs> it's also a game where not much happens, period. <laughs> Not much happens until it does, and then when it does, when something happens, it's amazing, and you think this was totally worth it to be here. There's a lot of waiting. It's like life, right? Momentum shifts quickly. It's a game where the best players fail two-thirds of the time. Like the ones that we remember in the history books only succeed at what they're trying to do a third of the time. On its surface, it's a game that just seems easy because you only do four things. You throw, you catch, you hit, and you run. That's it. It's those four things, but it's a million combinations of those four things, and mechanics get involved. And mechanics is the reason I'm talking about this in a sermon. Mechanics reveal the difference between what a player wants to do between what a player thinks he's doing and what he's actually doing. Sometimes a pitcher gets the yips. You ever heard of that? Just can't find the strike zone for the life of him. He's in his own head. He doesn't know how to do the game anymore. Sometimes a player loses his ability to hit. And when he does, it's easy for frustration to get a hold of him, and you can see it happen. You can see somebody who's going through a dry spell at the plate come up, and they just have this look of determination, like by sheer force of will, they're going to get a hit this time. And guess what? That never works. And the reason it doesn't work is because you don't hit a baseball by sheer determination and force of will. You hit a baseball by refined mechanics. And a lot of times when you're worked up and you're frustrated, your mechanics are the first thing to go. And determination won't correct that. Just because you want to hit the ball really bad doesn't mean you will come anywhere close to hitting the ball at all. But here's the thing, there's a reason. There's a reason he stops hitting. And if he wants to get, on back, if he wants to get back on track, what he has to do is he has to figure out what's wrong. What am I doing wrong? What is happening mechanically? And so what he'll do is he'll go with his trainer into the training room and they will watch the tape and they will watch the at-bats and they'll look, is he, are you dropping your shoulder? Is your timing off? Are you misreading the ball? Are you, not, are you not picking up on the motion of the pitcher who's throwing to you? 
And often it will take seeing the tape to convince a hitter of what he's doing wrong. He just won't believe that he's doing something wrong until he sees himself doing it. I'm using a lot of masculine pronouns because I'm talking about baseball, but there's that voice inside of my head that's saying, women too, and that's true, but baseball's all men in the major leagues. Um, Anyway, so that's why I'm doing that, sorry. But when it's time to look at the tape, well, how do you know when it's time to look at the tape? It's time to look at the tape when what you think you're doing is not what you're actually doing, and you don't know why. And so you go, and that's when you see the the results are not matching up with what it is that I think I'm doing. And so I ask the question, how does that work for us right now? Because what I just gave you was what they call in the business a metaphor, right? And I like to think of myself as a master of metaphor, that we, that we are talking about mechanics, reviewing the tape. Where in your life are you trying to do something, you think you're doing something, and you think it should be producing this result, and it's not? And try as you might, even when you try hard, for some reason you know it's not clicking with me. It's not working in the way that I want it to. It's not paying off. Maybe you feel this way about parenting. Maybe you feel this way about a career trajectory that you're on. Maybe you feel this way about some relationship that you're in that is just harder than you think it should be. And you're frustrated. And yet, mere determination and digging down deep is not seeming to produce results for you. This psalm is a psalm about mechanics. It's a psalm about building and protecting. It's a song about building and protecting your house and your security and your family. Everybody here is trying to build something. Everybody here is trying to protect something, right? And so what is that for you? What are you trying to build? What are you trying to protect? Have that in your mind as we walk through this. Is it a legacy? Is it something that you contribute to the world and people will look at the thing that you made and that will be the way that they remember you and assess you as a person? Is it wealth? Are you trying to build and protect, build or protect wealth, time, your own time, a view that you've had of yourself that has been recently challenged? Have you ever had that happen where you just have a view of yourself and then somebody just shatters that view of you? And you just feel like, wait, how do I get this back? You ever had that? I had that happen when we lived in Kansas City. There was absolutely nothing I could do about it. But boy, was it disheartening. We had some uh, college students who were doing research. And they were going door to door. And they they were just, they were doing a demographic study on people in a particular neighborhood. And our neighborhood was one of them. And they came and they said, can we ask you a question here? All we really need to do is we need to get your, your age, your weight, and your height. And I said, eh, and they said, and there's a $20 Target card. And I said, come on in. And they came in, and they got my name, and they got my weight. And they said, height, and I said, six foot. And they said, yeah, okay, but we still want to me- measure you, you know, I was like, okay, but I'm telling you, it's six foot. It's on my driver's license. I'm six foot. I'm five, ten and a half, guys. I had no idea I was five, ten and a half. 
till some college kid came into my garage and took from me. <laughs> and I haven't, haven't gotten that back. I can't change that, but we have that happen, right? We have a view of ourselves that gets challenged, and we feel like something is lost here, and I need to get that back. I can't grow an inch and a half, and I think I'm in an age where the other thing's going to happen. But behind our attempts to do this, behind our attempts to build and to protect, lies a deep-seated need to control things, right? And don't misunderstand. It can be good. It can be a good thing to build and to protect, be a very good thing for us to do this, to not go through life thoughtlessly, but to go through life intentionally. It's important for us to do that. But isn't it true that sometimes our approach to building and sometimes our approach to protecting things leads us to an unhealthy place where we feel the need to lock things down and to control things that we actually have no control over at all? It can be easy to get lost here. How can we tell? when we're protecting something that's good and something that we should protect versus when we're protecting something that should actually harm us and that can actually harm us. How can we tell the difference? We go to the tape. And what I mean by that is we look, what are my efforts that I'm expending producing? What are they producing in me? What are they producing in the people around me? Are they producing anxiety? Am I feeding a monster of anxiety that is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Is it feeding fear? Is it feeding anger, contempt for other people? Does my approach to the best things that God has given me in my life produce in me kind of a practical atheism? And by practical atheism, I mean that little voice that says, Ramsey, it's all up to you. And if you mess this up, it's over. It's on you. It's on you to preserve. It's on you to succeed. And if you fail, you have so much to lose. You could lose your reputation. You could lose your future. You could lose your house. You could lose your relationships. You could lose everything. And so we have to ask the question, okay, who gives me my identity, really? Am I in charge of preserving and protecting my identity and who I am in this world? Who gives us our identity? Who gives us our worth? Who gives us rest for our souls? Other people? Success? Control? Our own personal achievements? This psalm tells us no. No. Without God's blessing, all human toil is worthless. That's what this psalm says. And this psalm, if that sounds familiar... All human toil is worthless. That's because this is a rare psalm that is written by Solomon. And it has that echo of Ecclesiastes, right? Which is, life is meaningless toil. Everything you do under the sun is for nothing, right? This psalm tells us that without God's blessing, all human toil is worthless. That's the tension that Scripture calls us into and that we can't escape. And that is that we do live in God's world that God is the author of life, and anything that we try to do that regards him as outside of that picture is for nothing. It's futile. But wait, we might say, does that mean that I just need to sit idly by and wait for God then to do everything for me? No, because we participate with him. He clearly calls us to participate with him in his work in our lives. But here's the, here's the difference. We don't accomplish. 
his work in our lives. He does. We participate. We're involved in that process, but he is the one who accomplishes. And so, what this, so in a way, this psalm is upholding a, a work ethic, right? Show up. Do the work. God is the one who accomplishes the end results, but we participate with him in this. So a builder has to build, and a watchman has to stay awake. And parents, this psalm says, must regard their children as gifts of profound worth given by the very hand of God. They're like arrows that we shoot out into the world. Uh, this Sunday is a unique Sunday in that I have all of my kids here. Um, and we have many, a great many. We have five, and they're all here. All the arrows that we're shooting out into the world. But our faith in God... Our faith must be in him for the outcomes. We participate. We do what we're called to do, but he brings the result. If, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. In fact, the psalm says it's the only way you're going to find real rest. Otherwise, you're just going to spend yourself in endless toil. The only way to rest is to trust God for the outcomes because he's the one who builds. He's the one who gives rest. And so the psalm is a corrective. It's a corrective for anxious and fearful and overextended people because God is telling us here, trust me for what you need. Trust me for the outcomes. Trust in me for rest. Recognize the vanity of worrying and trust God. Easy, right? So just don't worry. Trust God. Well, it's not so easy. It's not so easy for me to say stop worrying and trust God. Because for many of us, stop worrying and trust God doesn't bring much change. It doesn't bring much relief. It doesn't bring much rest. Much rest. Why is that? Why is it so hard to stop worrying and to trust God? The reason is, we should look at the tape, Right? What is it that I'm doing? What is it that I'm thinking? How am I working out my life in a way that is producing a result of just ongoing anxiety and stress and fear and anger? Because when fear comes upon us, when anxiety hits, we do something with it. We do something with it. We swing the bat. We're mechanical in that sense, right? And so what are your mechanics of fear? What are your mechanics of anxiety? What are your mechanics of anger? What do you do when fear or the need to control something hits you? Do you swing into reaction? Do you rehearse conversations that you'd like to have? Probably won't, but you would like to have. Do you figure out how to play people against each other to shape an outcome? Do you dive into self-pity and say, I'm a terrible person because I shouldn't even be experiencing this or feeling this? We live in a culture that tells us if we feel something... If you feel something, listen to it because it must be true. And scripture, over and over again, including here, tells us not so fast. Don't trust that your emotions are going to tell you things that are true all the time. We're told not to worry, right? And when God tells us, do not be anxious about anything, one of the things that we're learning from Scripture, a principle that's there that's so valuable, is the Lord saying to his people, there are certain emotional impulses that you feel that as a follower of mine, you should not nurture. There are emotions that we feel that we should refuse to nurture. 
because they're not telling us true things. And worry tells us a simple lie. It tells us that something is that we have no way of knowing actually is. And yet we can believe it. There was a uh, J.R.R. Tolkien scholar named Patrick Curry who said this about despair, but I think the quote applies to worry equally. He says this, despair is for people who know beyond any doubt what the future is going to bring. Despair is for people who know beyond any doubt what the future is going to bring and nobody is in that position. So despair, he says, isn't only a kind of sin theologically, but it's also a simple mistake because nobody actually knows. And in that sense, there is always hope. So when we go to that place of despair, when worry drives us there and we abandon all hope, mechanics are happening, right? But it's dishonest mechanics. It's us saying, I'm confident in something that I actually have no way of really knowing. And yet I'm giving my heart away to it. Worry insists that certain things are true. Certain things are true that you really have no honest way of knowing. Looming disaster. And in this sense, it's dishonest to give ourselves away entirely to it. So what do we do instead? Because it's not enough to just say, don't worry. Listen, I'm a person who battles anxiety. Like in a deep, sometimes clinical sense of the word. That's a part of my story. It's a part of my journey. I don't like it, and yet spend some time with me. What are we to do instead? When worry and fear come upon you, go back to the tape to continue the metaphor. What do you do when that happens? When you feel afraid, when you feel fear, when you're worried, what do you do? Do you control? Do you bear down harder? What should you do? Scripture isn't silent on this. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious about nothing. Comma. But. In all things. So see, there's a mechanic here, right? Be anxious about nothing. Comma. Instead, do this. In all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So when anxiety grips you, pray. How do you pray? Pray in two ways, Scripture tells us here. First, let your requests be made known to God. Tell God what you want. Lord, calm my anxious heart. Give me rest. Take this thing that looms over me like a shadow so large it seems to eclipse the sun and quiet me and restore me and let there be a kind of a spring that happens in my soul. Let your requests be known to God. That's the first thing. The second is with thanksgiving. So you do this with thanksgiving. Thank him for who he is and for what he has already given. Scripture never tells us to pray, make your requests known, wait for God to do something, and then thank him for it. Scripture says, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, because we are confident that he can do all things. And so check the tape. What role does God play? What role does God play? Are you dropping your shoulder in this area? Do you only ask for help without trusting him for the outcome, without thanking him for what he's doing, for what he has done? Do you only thank him when he does the things that you would prefer him to do? Or consider Proverbs 3, 
verses five through eight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make, path, make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment for your bones. In other words, in everything, acknowledge him. Don't think that you see all that there is to see. For me, that is such a liberating truth that I can say to the Lord, I don't see all there is to see. Because sometimes what I see is depressing. And sometimes what I see is horrifying. And sometimes what I see is just unimpressive. And yet, don't lean on your own understanding. And always trust him. Revere the Lord and his word to you. It'll bring healing and refreshment to your bones. Are you tired? I'm tired. This is tiring, right? It's a tiring time to be navigating life. Here's what this psalm says. Listen, it's in vain that you rise up early and that you go to bed late. If the way that you're trying to combat this weariness and this fear and this anxiety is to just work harder, to work later into the day, to get up earlier and start the day earlier and work and work and go and go and go, eating the bread of anxious toil, the psalmist is saying, the Lord gives sleep to his beloved. He gives you rest. He wants you to rest. He wants to give you rest. And we need to be able to hear his call to get up and get moving just as much as we need to be able to hear his call to sit down and to rest because he's saying, I love to give you rest. I love to give you rest. So when the need to control grips you, Take that to the Lord and deal with it honestly. Unless he frees you, you will not be free. So talk to God about the places where you turn for satisfaction. Talk to him about what in your life is giving birth to bad outcomes and paralyzing fear. Ask people who know you and love him to speak into that as well. Because God wants to give you rest for your soul. Take, this t take time this week to look at that part of you, to look at wh what, what is contributing to the outcomes that I don't really want coming out of my heart and out of my soul. Go, go, go to the, review the tapes, right? What are the habits that are in play when it comes to building and protecting? And work on the discipline of thanksgiving for what is already true. Because here's what's true. The Lord loves you. And he wants to give you rest for your soul. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these promises that we read here that you delight to give rest. That this is something that you want. You give sleep to your beloved. Remind us, Lord, that we have a heritage with you. Uh, that we belong to you, that you have knit us together, that you have called us to be people who go through this life trusting in what you will do. Uh, we're thankful for your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.